0: Exodus chapter 14 verse 13 and Moses said to the people do not be afraid stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today for the Egyptians whom you see today you shall not you shall see again no more forever. This morning, we considered the first of three lessons drawn from ancient Israel as God was leading them through the wilderness. And we tried to point out that each of these three things that we're talking about, one this morning, two tonight, that we're discussing are principles that will help us when we get to the end of our tunnel. We began this morning's discussion talking about the sign that was posted in a workplace that said something along the lines of, due to the heavy workload around here, the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned off until further notice. And sometimes. Sometimes you feel that way in your own life. You feel like the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned off for you. The pessimist says the light at the end of the tunnel is the headlight of an oncoming train. But uh, we will not go into that tonight. I'm, I'm concerned only with what do we do. When we realize that there are circumstances in our life that sometimes are beyond our own control. Can we trust God at that moment in our life? When we realize that the light has in fact been turned off, we have no prospect of it ever being turned back on again. And we were looking at the record in Exodus chapter 13. Tonight, as David has just read, our primary focus is going to be in the 14th chapter. So I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles now, if you will, to that chapter because we're going to be looking at a number of passages and the principles that can be gleaned from that. Lessons to be learned from the wilderness wanderings in ancient Israel. First, we talked about how that God led them on a detour, that he led them in a circuitous sort of route away from the land of the Philistines because he knew that these were a warmongering people and that the Israelites certainly were not ready, they were not equipped. They were not emotionally or mentally prepared to, to fight in a battle. Later they would be, but at that point, just having left Egypt, they were not battle ready. And so God recognized that, and this detour away from the land of the Philistines was in their, with their best interest in mind. Secondly tonight, I want to talk about the dilemma of dead ends. Sometimes there's detours in our lives, and sometimes we just come to a dead end. We go, I don't know which way to go. I don't know what to do now. But it is a wonderful feeling when a detour finally comes to an end. You're back on the main road. You know, like, or exact, You feel like you know exactly where you are. And you're moving again comfortably toward your destination. At least there's forward progress being made. But it doesn't, didn't happen that way for the Israelites. And so we find a second lesson that we can learn from their wanderings. While Israel was moving through the wilderness, something was happening back in Egypt that would turn the discipline of Israel's detour into the dilemma of a dead end. If you got your Bible open, look at verse 8 of chapter 14. The Bible says simply, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So old Pharaoh decided that he had been a fool to let 2,000 or 2 million rather plus slaves go, and so he mustered his massive army to pursue the Israelites and to bring them back by force. That wasn't a hard prospect. It wasn't difficult for Pharaoh and his army on their horses and chariots to overtake those slow-moving, walking Israelites who had left Egypt. He catches up with them very quickly. If you look at verse 9, all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped by the sea. Then it mentions two names that I find impossible to pronounce, so I'm going to skip over them. But it's important that we do appreciate that the fact that the whole point of the text is that Pharaoh has been successful in overtaking them and where they are at that point. They are encamped by the sea. And The people of Israel saw the Egyptians coming and they became terrified. When they saw the sun glinting off of their swords and their spears and Pharaoh's army in, in close pursuit. And now God's people are, 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 were still being led by that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire that we talked about at length this morning. But God's light had led them into a dead end. They're probably at that moment second guessing themselves. Why did we ever listen to Moses in the first place? And this dead end, I, I need to remind you, is a lot worse than a detour. There were mountains on both sides of them. We need to understand what's taking place here. The Red Sea is in front of them and Pharaoh is coming up behind them with blood in his eyes. And the Israelites were between the sword and the sea. They were hemmed in, and there was no possible way out that they could see. Now, so they began to blame Moses as their aggravation turned to desperation, which is not atypical. That's usually what happens when a group of people don't like where they are. They began to blame and criticize the leadership. But notice what's happening. Chapter 14. Verses 11 and 12. And they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? I guess they quickly forgot what kind of lifestyle they were living while they were in the mud pits of Egypt. But they're criticizing Moses. Logic has nothing to do with it. Why have you dealt so with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. So the people were basically saying, Moses, can't you even read a map? Well, map or no map, here's what Moses was doing. He was still following a sovereign God. He was doing what God had commissioned him to do when he called him to be the deliverer of the Israelite people. They were not there by happenstance. Remember, in heaven, there is no panic, only plans. And now they're beginning to understand, at least to some degree, the truth of that statement. So God had told Moses to camp at the very place where they were now pinned between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. Notice verse 2 of Exodus chapter 14. God is the one who says, here's where I want you to camp. And so here they are, some 2 million plus Israelites. They're camped here by the sea, and all of a sudden they look up, here comes Pharaoh's army. And they're pinned in. They're hemmed in. They have no way to escape. God led them for a wonderful purpose. Which he described in verse 3 like this. For Pharaoh, here's God's plan. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. In other words, he's got you hemmed in. And I have Pharaoh exactly where I want him. He's now thinking exactly the way I thought he would think. That is, he thinks that the Israelites have nowhere to go. There is no prospect for escape. You see, God led the people into that dead end because he was going to bring a judgment on Pharaoh and he was going to use the Israelites to bait his hook. So God said to Moses, This is verse four, look carefully. I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon uh, upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. In other words, they're going to learn a lesson as well as the Israelites. The Egyptians are going to come to know the one true God. Here's the point of application. In life, we're going to encounter situations that are not just aggravating, that push us right up against the wall. And I know that you are familiar with the expression having our backs against the wall. That's where that imagery comes from. That's where the Israelites were, and that's where some of God's people find themselves in 2019 with their backs against the wall, with no prospect. They don't know what to do now. They, they don't know what the roadmap would have them to be going or where it would have them to be going. No one can avoid the dead ends in life. I'm just going to go ahead and, and reveal that to you right up front. There, there's no one on this planet that is immune from the difficulties. And the tribulations of life. We mentioned that a couple of times this morning. But it is integral to an understanding of what's happening here in Israel. And it's integral to understanding what's happening in our lives. There are times when the light of God's guidance will lead you in places that you would on your own not go. They will lead you straight into a place of desperation. And you won't see any way out. There is no preacher that can give you a sermon that will explain, here's what you need to do next. There's no book to help you. There is no doctor or banker that will soothe your hurts when you are in a dead end in your life. You're just there with apparently no human way out. Now remember that when you come to that dead end, there is still no panic in heaven, only plans. The Israelites were, were not out of the will of God when they came to their dead end. So the question that we need to ask is, why did God lead them there? He did it so that, Please take this home with you so that their place of desperation would become a place of dependence. I want to say that again so that their place of desperation would become a place of dependence. When we can see absolutely no way out, we have to cast ourselves completely upon the Lord. Have you noticed that in your life? That's where he wants us. It's there that he can really begin to reveal his will to us and for us. And God told the children of Israel what to do next. I'm referring now to verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 14. And Moses said unto the people, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. are those wonderful words? Stand still and behold the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them no more again forever. In other words, they're never going to again be on your radar screen, at least to the degree that they are now. They're not going to be a problem for you. You will not know them again forever. And then he ends by saying the Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. And then when the people obeyed God, he told Moses, speaking to the children of Israel, that they may go forward. That's verse 5 of chapter 14. Four things that we need to learn when we're at a dead end. Then we'll move on. There are four, I think, wonderful rays of divine guidance that these verses will help us to make it through your dead end. Even as the Israelites surveyed and, and, and then eventually survived their dead end experience in the wilderness. Number one. And I'm just going to take these the way they're outlined in scripture because that's the best possible way to do it. Number one, and this may well be the toughest of the four things that we need to learn when we're in a dead end. Don't be afraid. First thing Moses told the people was not to be afraid. Even though they saw, you know, plenty of reasons that they ought to be shaking in their sandals. Heard about a preacher who met with a dear friend who was also a gospel preacher. They'd known each other for many, many years. They were just kind of like what I was talking about last week with my friend Harold. They had that kind of camaraderie that only, I guess, two preachers can experience. They were sitting, however, this time in a motel room, and one of those men was deeply grieving because one of his sons had just committed suicide. The preacher who had lost his son had a basic message for years that he preached over and over again which is the all-sufficiency of Christ. If you invited to come to speak for a summer series or if you invited to come to preach a gospel meeting, somewhere in one of those lessons, and probably in all of them, he would reference the all-sufficiency of Christ. As they were talking in that motel room that night in the late hours of the night after that terrible tragedy, the grieving father said to his friend, I've learned one thing in the death of my son. There really is... Nothing to fear. The reason I know that is because I believe that I have been dealt the worst that the devil can deal out. And Jesus Christ is still enough. When we're in our dead ends, we need to, we need to learn that that is a place of dependence. And not a place where we need to just feel desperate. Desperate. Now, I've never lost a child to suicide, and I'm thankful to God for that. But just like everybody else, I've known some pain and sorrow in my life. And I can tell you along with that preacher that Jesus Christ is sufficient, that he is enough to sustain every one of us when we are in the Gethsemanes of life. I don't know how God will bring you to that place of desperation, but he wants you to know that you have nothing to fear because he's there with you. I love Hebrews 13, 5. Our God has said, I will never, under any circumstances, ever leave you or forsake you. Do you know that the words fear not or their equivalent are found 365 times in the Bible? Is it just coincidence that that means there's one for every day of the year? One reminder That we as God's people don't need to be afraid. God's word says, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what men shall do unto me. That's verse 6 of the Hebrews 13 passage just quoted. God brings you to a place of desperation so that you might be able to say, I'm not afraid. Number two, lesson number two is to stand still. That too is a difficult proposition. That's the second instruction you'll notice here that Moses gave the Israelites. This is verse 13. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will show you today. You know, you can't keep your feet still when your heart's pounding. And I think that's pretty much where those Israelites were. As we've just sung that wonderful song, the Bible actually says in Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes we're so busy manipulating, conniving, and making our plans and getting all the minutia right, we finally come to a place where God hems us in with the mountains around us, the sea in front of us, and the devil coming up behind us. There is no place in the world to look except up. And God tells us to stand still when we reach a dead end. What you need to do is not keep moving your feet, not keep going forward. You need to stand still at that moment. But that advice, as you well know, is absolutely counter to the spirit of our age. We're told in our culture that if you find yourself in a tight spot, in a hairy situation, do something even if it's wrong. And that's terrible advice for the simple reason that it's always wrong to do wrong. It reminds me of the account over in Mark chapter 5. You know the story of how Jesus cast demons out of a man and sent them into a herd of 2,000 pigs. The Bible says the entire herd then rushed into the sea and they were drowned. Someone has said as they were studying that in a Bible class, he said, "I can imagine, I can imagine what those pigs were feeling at that moment. One of them saying to another, now look, we're in a real mess, but whatever we do, let's stay together and let's all keep moving. Well, you see how that turned out. And that's the way a lot of people in our world think today. We've got to do something. But sometimes God puts us in a place where there is nothing that we can do. And in those cases, God tells us to stand still. Don't just do something. Stand still. Lesson number three see the Lord's salvation. God wants us to stand still when we reach that dilemma of a dead end because he wants to show us his great salvation. Now, I want you to notice something that I think is of great importance in this text. Moses told the people to stand still and see God's salvation. That is, their deliverance from Pharaoh, watch this, before it happened, before it happened. They were to see it through the eye of faith. It doesn't take much faith to thank God for delivering them when they're already standing on the bank of the sea on the other side and they're watching Pharaoh's army drown in the middle of the sea. There's that time of faith when we simply say, I refuse to fear. I stop and I place myself, dear God, in your hands. And God, if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. And now by faith, I see my way out even when I can't see it. If that makes any sense at all. Lesson number four is then move forward in faith. Notice God did not act until the Israelites obeyed his word to stop their fear and to stand still. And after they had refocused their faith, he then told them to move forward as he commanded Moses to stretch out his rod over the sea. Here is where the instructions that God gave to Moses to in turn give to the Israelites. Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Paul tells us that we serve a God who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Romans 4 and verse 17. Imitating our God, we by faith call things that are not as though they are so that they might be. And that's what the Israelites were doing. And when we do that, then God will show us a way that we've never ever possibly seen before. By the way, there is no contradiction here between God's commands to stand still and then his command to move forward. It is all a matter of timing. When we've come to that place of rest and confidence where by faith we can see God in action, then we can move forward and we can reap the fruit of our faith. And when the Israelites had learned the lessons of the dead end, God opened a way for them that had never been there before. God said to Moses, you lift up your rod and you stretch it out your hand over the sea and divide it and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. That's verse 16 of chapter 14. God turned that dead end into a six-lane superhighway through the middle of the Red Sea. Please don't miss that. The Lord knows the way through the wilderness. He knows the way through the sea. He knows a thousand ways to make a way for you and me when we find ourselves in the dead end of life. Remember God's question found in Jeremiah 20, uh, verse 32, verse 27. Chapter 32, verse 27. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything that's too hard for me? That so-called impossibility is God's opportunity to display his glory if you're following his guiding light in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire. And then finally, let's talk about quickly the disappointment of dry holes. If detours and dead ends are difficult to deal with, look what happened when we run into the disappointment of a dry hole. First, there's a detour, but when you get on a detour, eventually you get off. When you get into a dead end, you see no way out. But finally, there is the disappointment of a dry hole. That's what happened to the Israelites. That was the Israelites' next stop in their wilderness journey. God was leading the people still. They had not become lost. They had not misread the map. But he led them in what seems like a strange way. Look at verse 22 of chapter 15 this time. The Bible says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness. You kind of, it's kind of building you up to something great, isn't it? But it ends by saying, And found no water. He led them into the wilderness of Shur, and they found no water. Now this is a tough time for the Israelites, and you know that. Imagine you've been driving all night, you're looking for a motel on a remote stretch of isolated highway and you're bone weary and you finally check into the motel room only to realize that there's no water. The tap is dry, there's no cool water to drink, there's no hot water to take a refreshing shower and so you realize that you're not exactly where you wanted to be when you stopped looking for some respite. We've learned that if God led the Israelites on a detour and into a dead end for his purposes with his plans in mind, he must have led them. He must have led them to this dry hole in the wilderness of Shur with some kind of divine purpose in mind. Again, they weren't there because they had sinned or because they displeased God. They were there because God had a test for them to take. We read about this test in the very next verse of Exodus chapter 15, take a look at 23 through 25. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Mar- Marah, for they were bitter. And therefore, the name of it was called Marah. That means for bitter. And, and the people murmured against Moses. That's kind of getting to be a pattern, isn't it? The people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried into the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance. And there he, watch this closely, and there he proved them. The Bible says God proved the Israelites there at Mara. That word literally means he tested them. You know, when automakers develop a new model of car, they take it out to a test track that's called a proving ground. And they put it through all the rigors of every road hazard and dr- demanding driving condition imaginable. And the car maker does all of that to see if the car will stand up to the demands of modern driving. That just makes sense. That's what God's doing with his people right here in Exodus 15. His plan for the Israelites was described in retrospect over in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses said, "...you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God led you these forty years in the wilderness." This is a do-you-remember-these-days of, kind of speech that Moses is delivering. And then he goes on to say, here's why he did that. To humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So this dry hole at Marah is a test. The Israelites did not arrive at that dry hole in that place of bitter waters Necessarily because God was angry with them or because Moses was a poor leader. It was a normal and a natural part of their trip through the desert. And we need to appreciate that. The Lord was giving them a test to see what was in their hearts. Not, watch this carefully, not because he needed the information, because they needed that. You know, there are times when we need to be tested so that we'll learn some things about ourselves. So we'll learn how deep our character is. So we'll learn how firm our convictions are so that we will learn how intense our commitment is, whether or not in the hard, difficult places of life, we really will trust in the guidance and the leading hand of a sovereign God. You're going to come to the same dry hole on occasion if you follow the Lord. It happens to every child of God. Now, I know that's quite a revelation to some believers who think that once you obey Christ, everything will go swimmingly. So so many times we come to a dry place and our immediate reaction is to say, well, what went wrong? Well, maybe nothing. God is still leading you, but, but he's giving you a test. He's still on his throne. Everything is still under control. When you come to the disappointment of a dry hole, God is giving you a test. So how did Israel do on their test? They failed miserably. We read a moment ago that the people murmured and complained against Moses. That, again, has become a recurring pattern. And that's pretty remarkable. I want to remind you back in Exodus 15, 1 through 21, is the Song of Moses. In one of our songs, we sing about the Song of Moses. But this is the Song of Moses that they wrote immediately after they had been delivered through the Red Sea on dry land. They wrote an entire song so that they could sing this in praise and thanksgiving and sincere gratitude to the God who had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians through the, the through the Red Sea can you believe that these people had just enjoyed a great victory they'd sung they'd danced with joy 3 days later they were murmuring and complaining again sounds a lot like a modern church doesn't it in just 3 days moses had gone from hero to zero and the people had gone from sweet songs to sour dispositions. Let me ask this question before we move on. Are you a complainer when you come to a dry hole in your life? When things are tough, is that your first reaction is to complain and bellyache? I pray that you're not, because there's something that you need to learn about being a murmurer. That's the Old Testament word for bellyacher. Moses told the Israelites in Exodus 16, verse 8, don't miss this, your murmuring's are not against us, but against the Lord. You know, that's exactly what they needed to hear on that occasion, wasn't it? Moses realized that even though it was difficult, I'm sure, as a leader, to hear criticism about his leadership abilities, that it was nothing personal. He said, I want you to know, and you need to know, that when you murmur and criticize me, you're not criticizing me, you're criticizing the Lord himself. That's one of the greatest lessons we can ever learn, folks we don't need to miss that tonight. Teenagers who are complaining about their parents need to know that those very parents were given to them by God. And people who complain about their teacher, their preacher, their boss, they need to understand that God gave them those people to help direct them. God gave Moses to the Israelites. And so when they complained against Moses, they were in fact griping against the Lord God himself. Let me put all this on the Lord's shelf for you before we quit. Complaining is a sin that God lists along with such abominable transgressions as idolatry and fornication. Complaining is serious business. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, not coincidentally but providentially, specifically in verses 1 through 13, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and saying, one of the things we need to be careful about is that we don't go back and repeat the exact same mistakes that the Israelites made in the wilderness wanderings. He was preaching them a lesson much like we preach today. And he was saying, here's a great lesson from chapter 10 that we need to really understand. We do not need to do what they did. And just peruse those verses and you'll find things like this. Verse 6, idolatry. Do not fall into idolatry like the Israelites did. Verse 7, fornication. Verse 8, tempting God. Verse 9, complaining. Complaining. And then he follows that up in verse 10 by saying, Neither complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. It does not turn out well for people who bellyache. Well, all that the Israelites had going for them in Moses' leadership and the light of God's guidance and presence, why in the world would they ever complain? It was a lack of both faith and reason. That's what it was. Think about it. Would God have brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea so wonderfully, only to bring them out to a dry hole and let them die there beside that dry hole of thirst without any water. That just doesn't make any kind of sense. Let me ask you a question. And I hope you'll take this into your heart. If Jesus Christ died for you on the cross and he redeemed you from your sins, do you think that he saved you and redeemed you just to abandon you? I think this intelligent audience knows the answer to that question. Do you think that God has invested so much in you to desert you now? That didn't make any sense, and that's exactly Paul's reasoning in Romans 8, verse 32. If God gave us his son, will he not give us all good things to enjoy? I mean, of all things, he gave us the greatest thing. So he's not going to He's not going to hedge on the smaller things. Israel's complaining was rooted in unbelief, and it was a terrible sin against God. Make no mistake about it. The water at Mar was bitter and undrinkable, and they thought that they were going to die of thirst right there on the spot. Now, there are often two classes of people, I think, in the church today those who complain, those who know how to pray. The the people murmured against Moses, but Moses immediately went to the Lord, and God showed Moses a tree to throw into the waters and make them sweet. You just read the account along with me. Now, what's interesting to me is that that tree had been there the whole time that the Israelites were complaining. God already had made the provision for for their thirst problem, and, and he knew what he was going to do. Here's another thing to think about. I think this tree in a symbolic type Typical sort of way speaks of Jesus Christ, whom Jeremiah called the righteous branch Jeremiah twenty three five. It also speaks of Calvary, whom Peter said in First Peter two twenty four Jesus was was nailed to a tree. God brought the people to a place of dryness and desperation, so that He might display to them by type and symbol the sufficiency of the, of Calvary and of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the barren places of life. Here in the Old Testament, he is still looking forward to the coming of the Redeemer, the great branch of redemption. God still tests us to prove us today, so that we'll learn so that we'll learn that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all-sufficient. He is everything we need. And so we need to stop complaining. And we need to keep singing the kinds of songs that we've sung today, expressing our gratitude for what he's done for us and what he's promised to do for us in the future. So many times we come to that test of the dry hold, and what we don't realize is that God has a provision for us that may be right in front of us if we could just see it through the eye of faith. I pray to God that you will not fail the test when it comes to you. Here's something to file away in your mind and to remember when God brings you to a dry place. Those grumbling Israelites could not see it from where they were. I've saved the best for last, folks. Look at chapter 15 of Exodus, verse 27. Just over the hill from Marah, where they said, we're going to die of thirst right here on the spot. God has abandoned us. Moses doesn't know what he's doing, and we're going to die right here. Couldn't we have died back in Egypt? Over the hill from Marah was a beautiful oasis. Listen to verse 27, chapter 15. They came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water, and three score and ten, that's 70 palm trees. That's no small oasis, and they encamped there by the waters. The lesson is no matter how dry the place, God has a provision for his people. I remember reading about Alexander Solzhenitsyn and the gripping account of his ordeal in the Soviet communist prison camp. Solzhenitsyn says that he was suddenly arrested by Stalin's secret police and sent to that labor camp there in Siberia, and he was so tortured in mind and body that he seriously contemplated suicide. In fact, he, he wondered if anyone in the world knew where he was, if anyone cared. He felt so utterly alone. So he drew up this suicide plan in his mind. He already had it all played out and formulated about exactly how he was going to do it. But he told nobody about his intentions. But the day, the very day that Solzhenitsyn was planning to take his own life, he was sitting on the ground when another prisoner walked by and looked at him. That wasn't common because usually in a prisoner of war camp, they didn't make eye contact with one another because that might get you into deeper trouble. But this man stopped and and he looked at him. It was as if he was seeing into Alexander's mind and into his heart and he knew that he was a desperate man. The prisoners were not allowed to speak, but the man knelt down in front of Solzhenitsyn and took his finger... And drew a cross in the dirt. Solzhenitsyn said that he drew strength from that man's simple reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. And within a week he said, I was a free man walking around the streets of Geneva, Switzerland. It turned out that people around the world knew very much where he was, had been praying and petitioning for his release. And he said to think that I was about to commit suicide and within a week I was a free man. You may be camped beside a dry hole right now wondering why God has forsaken you. God hasn't forsaken you, my friend. He is only proving you. He brought you to that dry place. It's right there on the map that he's drawn for your life. So don't complain. Don't bellyache. Always remember that the cross is sufficient for you. Right over the hill, right over the hill, God has an oasis If only you will see it through the eye of faith. The important thing is not to know everything that God knows because that will never happen. But the important thing is for you to keep following God's light, those pillars of cloud and of fire. In New Testament terms, that means walk in the spirit. And if you have to take a detour somewhere along the way, you praise God for it. And if you come to a dead end, you praise God anyway. And if you come to a dry hole, you praise God, your God knows the way through the wilderness. And as the old gospel hymn says, all all I have to do is follow. And that's the question that we pose to you tonight as we sing the song of encouragement. Are you ready to follow this God while we stand and while we sing?